I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not and, as um, simple you know, I, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many more know, doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. This is the Turn On The Sopranos podcast. I'm in a waste management business. Everybody immediately assumes you're mobbed up. It's a stereotype and it's offensive. Hey, forget about it. And now, here's your host, the boss, Joe Caparoso. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to a very, very special episode of the Turn on the Jets podcast, where we are not going to talk about the New York Jets. We're not going to talk about the NFL. We're not even going to talk about sports. We're going to talk about The Sopranos, which I constantly reference on my Twitter how much I love. It's been... My favorite show for a long time now, and judging from some of the feedback I've gotten, and since it's the 10-year anniversary, and there's this, been this great Alan Sepinwall book, I decided we're just going to do a Sopranos-centric podcast. I hope you guys are interested, you enjoy it. I brought on my cousin Chris Saletti, who has contributed and written to and works at a variety of different places associated with media and popular culture. Chris, I can't even list them all through right now. We've done this in the past. It's been a couple of years, but you, you want to rip through them real quick before we dive in? Uh, yeah, sure. I mean, I uh, – yeah, and thanks for, you know, thanks for having me on. I'm, I'm, I'm so, so excited to, to get, in, get into The Sopranos. But yeah, I mean uh, – yeah, I, I've covered uh, you know I've covered sports and and um, movies and television at, at a couple different outlets. Um, you know, I, I wrote for for SB Nation uh, years back, covering the the Knicks and the Jets uh, mostly, and but uh, some other you know just general New York sports stuff. And then um, you know I have contributed to turn on Jets in the past. Uh, some of the like TOJ OGs might remember some of my content from years ago, uh, and we also. Did some Knicks coverage on uh, turn on the Knicks for you know for a few years there too, um, you know. And now my as my day job has uh, dominated more and more of my time. I've had a, a little less time to write about sports and and movies and pop culture, but I I, I have written a lot about movies uh, on my own personal uh, my own personal blog. And uh, I was uh, employed at a, a, a site called Audiences Everywhere uh, for for a while before that site unfortunately shuttered uh, a year ago. Um, writing about writing about movies there, so yeah, I mean a little bit of a, you know, sports and sports and pop culture, uh, you know, um, you know, the, the two of two of my biggest interests for sure, and I try to try to write about them and talk about them as much as I, you know, as much as I possibly can. So uh, yeah, this is a really good, uh, really good merging of uh, of your and I interests here, uh, and you know, I'm a bit confused. You said we're not going to talk about football at all, but I mean. I I I just can jump right into it. I mean, my favorite episode of The Sopranos ever is the Eric Mangini episode. So, like, why? I mean, we we have to talk about the Jets. It's the great. It's the greatest uh, cameo of any Jets individual in popular culture. It's such a short, such a short scene, but Mangini. It is, but it's but it's very. I mean, the power he conveys as sitting at that booth in the Italian restaurant is just is just you know it's. It's pure man genius. The year one success going right to his head, going right on the most popular show in the entire world, yes. popping into yep. 
uh, hang with Tony Soprano. I remember when I first like watched it, like is that Eric Mangini? And then they bring it up like a second later, and it's like, what yeah. is the Jets coach really on the Sopranos right now? It's, it's incredible. I mean, it's it's actually so in, in retrospect, it's so jet like to have their like your their coach, their first year coach, end up on on the Sopranos, and like it's just it, you know, it's like we we just get so overwhelmed as Jet fans with like any bit of success. And like with Man- with Mangini ending up on The Sopranos, it was almost that to like th- like the nth degree. It was just like not only do we have this exciting new, you know, maybe not exciting on the sideline, but like we're excited about this new, you know, successful head coach we have. And like not only is he going to be a good good coach, like he's going to be a, this is like he's going to be like this representative for the Jets, and he, he's now famous. He's on The Sopranos. And then like three years later, he's you know with Brett Favre is. Is 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 hobbling around the field, and Mangini's coaching career is just like in the toilet. So it's uh, it was just like nothing encapsulates encapsulates being a Jet fan, even almost even more than seeing Mangini show up on The Sopranos. It's just perfect. A sad fall from grace for Manginius. Um Yeah. So I think it, a lot of it has to do with this this recent book release. But there's been a bit of uh, feels like in popular culture there's been this sort of little Sopranos renaissance. Obviously, it's the kind of thing that I think. It's a very rewatchable show. It's the kind of show you could go back and kind of go through your favorite episodes or, you know, watch the whole yep. series through start to finish. Uh, it, it definitely lends itself to that. And I felt like in some of the years right after it, when shows like Mad Men and Breaking Bad came out, even The Wire to a certain extent, it was, you know, The Sopranos was out in front of all these and it wasn't remembered quite as fondly right after. Everyone was, it was a great show, it was inspiration for these other shows, but, you know, it really, it missed the mark in a lot of the later seasons, it feels dated, it wasn't that consistent, and I feel like a lot of that criticism is gradually filtered away with almost, which with each passing year, I feel like it gets appreciated a little bit more and I think you know I think Mad Men is a comparable show in many ways but I think this show is going to age better than a Mad Men than a Breaking Bad I think The Wire is a very different show and I think that's a whole separate discussion whether which one you think is better I think Sopranos is certainly more rewatchable um, from my perspective Uh, while The Wire might be just better maybe overall but how do you feel, you know, now with the amount of time that's passed? How have the impressions of the show changed? And why do you feel like it is kind of getting a little more popular with each passing year, being remembered a little more fondly? Yeah, I think it, I think the way you describe it is accurate. And I, I think um, I think a lot of it has to do with, well, A, look, it was, it was so influential and it was sort of the first of its kind. And, you know, obviously, I mean, the first other shows you mentioned as – as so highly influenced by the Sopranos, Mad Men, and Breaking Bad, uh, you know, you know, the Sopranos was was one of the first to to put this first first dramatic television show to put somebody at the center of it that was the antihero. So it's this bad guy, and we know he's a bad guy. And in Tony Soprano's case, he's a he's a criminal and he's a cheat. But we're going to center it around this guy, and we are going to, you know. Uh, sort of forced the audience to to endure uh, violence and and so much wrongdoing. But, you know, you find yourself as the viewer rooting for this person. And, uh, you know, and, and The Sopranos is one of the first shows to do that. So I think what's happened over the years is there's been so many shows that have, that have followed 
uh, in the tried to follow in the Sopranos footsteps. So yeah, Mad Men and, and Breaking Bad are two of the ones that did so in and and were able to be really incredible shows in their in their own right by sort of following that formula. Now both shows are obviously uh, you know m- much much different than the Sopranos, and they are they are uh, incredible shows on uh, you know on their own merit. Um, Mad Men is very close to the, to the Sopranos, and 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 obviously there's a there's a connection there. And writer and creator of of Mad Men, Matthew Weiner, wrote and produced for uh, for David Chase and the Sopranos, starting I believe in season five. And uh, you can really see a lot of the Mad Men influence or the oh, the Sopranos influence in uh, on Mad Men uh, in in some of Weiner's work on the Sopranos and, and some of the later episode, later season episodes in the Sopranos. So, uh, the, you know, the dream sequence stuff is something that David Chase would had, had done, you know, as early as even the, the first and second season, but particularly something like the Kevin Finnerty stuff, uh, in season, in season six, um, you know, you start, you start getting, you watch that and then you watch Mad Men and you really sort of see just, just from a sort of tone, uh, you know where where the Sopranos, uh, you know, so so highly influenced Mad Men, but I think uh, as to why the show, the Sopranos has, you know, the, the reputation is sort of kind of coming back around is because, you know, I think the way we watch TV is so different now. Uh, there's just you know with so many all the platforms and streaming, and there's just so much damn TV out there that. You know, you can't help but uh, you know realize that there's really been a, a quantity over over quality problem with television over the past few years. It's not that there's not good shows out there now, uh, but there's just you know the 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 Sopranos. Um, the further we get removed from it, the more special uh, we realize it, it was. Um, and, and I think, and again, I th- I do think part of that has to do with with just the amount of stuff that's out there now. Uh, you know, is it, it, and the way we watch stuff with with binge watching and and uh, you know the the, pat, the the just the the way the way we consume television is so different now. But you know, The Sopranos, uh, you know, was was really really um, groundbreaking in in uh, you know in in so many ways. So I think, yeah, I think the more the further we get from it, the more the the more appreciative we become of it, and and you know, like anything else, you can just dive back into it, and you know, it, there's there's just so much uh, that you you notice on second and third and fourth watches, and 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 you know, that's not even from a plot perspective. That's from that's from the perspective of its themes and what it's and what it's saying and and the way it the way it says it. Uh, it's just such a deep and rich show. Uh, you know, and we'll obviously get into some of that as we get get more specifically into episodes and stuff. But yeah, uh, you know, and certainly the the the, the anniversary of of the finale and the fact that we're already ten years from from the last uh, Sopranos episode airing on on TV. You know, that sort of that natural anniversary sort of forced a uh, you know a, a bit of a look back and. You know, and I think people are just, you know, with with that time passing, are looking back and saying, you know, yeah, like not only was Sopranos just a, a great show and highly influential, but now that we look back on it, um, nothing, you know, nothing has really come close, I think, to to matching it in terms of uh, artistic merit and, uh, and and you know, well, not not necessarily popularity, but obviously the Sopranos. I'm Alex Rodriguez, and I'm Jason Kelly from Bloomberg. This is the deal. Each week, you're here as in conversation with business icons. 
This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is not as simple as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened up so many more doors. The show is called The The Deal. Deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. It's insanely popular, but uh, it's it's just, it, it, it kind of just the stand on its own the further you get from it. This is the Overtime Podcast Network. We'll dive into the finale specifically because what what you sure. said about it being the 10-year anniversary when we talk about, as we talk about now, let's talk about some of our best, worst episodes, best, worst seasons, and maybe some of the narratives that are accurate or not accurate about the show. I think in re-watching it, I'm always encouraged how it actually doesn't feel that dated, and it does still feel... Uh, elements of it do still feel relatable despite the subject matter. That's probably a little biased from both of our perspectives in that we're Italian guys from North Jersey and this show is about <laughs> Italian guys from North Jersey. And for me, yeah, you know, growing up, yeah, audience, you know. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And in growing up in North Jersey, you see a lot of, you know, locations that you're familiar with and yep, just the general sure. sort of backdrop and environment and vibe feels right and it feels very authentic and that I think comes from David Chase you know growing up in North Jersey and around all these places where he's shot and you know I think I don't necessarily disagree with the general sentiment that there's some stretches later in the half of the the series run early in season six and late in season five that maybe aren't the best moments I do think I, I was always pleasantly surprised and impressed that, you know, season one set the bar so high and they found a really good way to keep the antagonist for Tony fresh in season two and season three by going through with Richie. And then you bring his sister in and make her more of a factor into the show. And then bringing yeah. Ralphie in as someone who's just like a complete force in the third and fourth season. And I feel like those first four seasons were almost pretty much like flawless. They certainly had, you know, their moments or, you know, episodes that you kind of shake your head at. Uh, And then, yeah, I I think, of course, no one likes, you know, when Vito goes to New Hampshire and they have some of these episodes where (laughs) I don't think it's fair to say that they're buying time, but I think they were still trying to figure out how do you give an appropriate end to every sort of ancillary character around him. And then I think I was always struck by, like, the last, that last run of episodes, how dark it does actually get and how quickly yeah and how quickly he goes from you know when he recovers from the gunshot wound and goes through the little purgatory hotel which we've seen other shows like the lift the leftovers kind of do their own take on how dark that last kind of run is from you know him assisting christopher dying to him kind of deteriorating all the relationships around him and at the end there's really like from a from a mafia side of it there's kind of nobody left around him uh, yeah. It's just a bunch of like random guys uh, who are still right. there. When you look back, sort of on the totality of like the peaks and valleys of the show, what what sticks out to you? Yeah, I mean, I I, I think um, you know it, it's funny because you know you look you you mentioned specifically. I think it's like the thing that comes up with with when with everybody when they think of like the valleys of this show or like where it got like too bloated or too you know, too, we're, we're, too, we're wasting too much time is Vito in New Hampshire. And that's like the thing that everybody talks on is like, I just don't, I don't need to spend, you know, three, four episodes with Vito in New Hampshire. But like, I don't know, I'm going to sit here and kind of like stand for some of the Vito in New Hampshire stuff. Like, no way am I saying that's a peak of the show. But like, there is like, we could do a podcast on 
veto in New Hampshire, and it would be it would be good. I'm just throwing that <laughs> we out. Make there. Like, we make it work. Maybe we just have to like do a separate veto New Hampshire podcast, like uh, you know. But but yeah, look, I mean, certainly the show the show comes out of you know comes out of the gate firing pretty much. I mean, the first season is 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 just um, you know it, it's it's a perfect blend of like of of um, you know. Uh, of action of 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 action um and and also you know that sort of the sort of family drama and internal drama that tony is going through uh you know it, it, that is it, the first season is sort of where that where the 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 juxtaposition of those two is sort of perfectly balanced um and and because of that it it that first season really moves nicely um you know in the later seasons is where you know it gets a, it, it definitely starts to sort of slow down a bit uh, in terms of in terms of the 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 mob storylines and you know not that stuff isn't happening but it takes longer to happen in the in the later seasons um, you know and your mileage may vary on on what you sort of find interesting and that's one of the great things about this show is that there is you know uh, I wouldn't say something for everyone but. Um, you know, there is whether or not you're most interested in the in the sort of the the mob plot lines, or or you're interested in, uh, you know, Tony as a character, or Carmela as a character, or Chris Maltesanti as a character, uh, you know, or Adriana. I mean, there's just so many, uh, you know, different different avenues the show was able to explore throughout its years, and and it definitely took its time to and, and went deeper into some of those other characters and other storylines as the show went on. Um, I, I would say just from, like, a thematic standpoint, not necessarily, like, plot lines or seasons or, or episodes, but from a thematic standpoint, um, you know, I always kind of found the brief, the, the sort of brief asides to dealing with the sort of italian american uh experience a bit of the more clunky uh parts of of the sopranos i mean there's like that scene in the first season where uh dr melf it's it's like a dinner at dr melfi's house and it's when like uh somebody somebody i i can't remember exactly what it was but there's like a they they flip on the news and there's like a somebody got arrested or something and, and it was an associate of tony's or something or, or something and and you know it sparks this conversation with Dr. Melfi and her husband and her son about like how Italian Americans are are like uh, you know are portrayed and the mob is such a scourge on the Italian American you know experience and and then you have the the episode in season four where uh, <laughs> you know Paulie and Silvio are are like are attacking a bunch of Native Americans because of Columbus Day. I always found like that to be a little bit of like the well, the least interesting stuff and it's not like pervasive throughout the entire series but it was just like you know, I don't know, of all the things the Sopranos could, you know, you know, touches on and all all the things it sort of gets into as like I always thought like the the experience of the Italian American is is not exactly the most fertile for like for for uh, you know, for for uh, the show to to uh, explore but you know, look. I mean, you know, the show is—it's a consistently great show, and I mean, it's—you know—it's what? How many episodes? Like 80, 86 episodes. I want to say. I mean, there's not too many in there to me that are that are I would consider a bad episode of television. You know, obviously some more more 
you know, uh, run of the mill or forgettable as others. But, uh, you know, there's, you could, that's 86 or so hours of television that are, are, are pretty consistently, uh, great across the board. Yeah, I agree. I think like, again, like even the worst of this show is still pretty good and better than most of the stuff out there. You mentioned some of the, uh, Italian-American stuff, and in reading back through this book and reading, obviously I don't remember it at the time, but, you know, people kind of complaining about how Italian-Americans were portrayed in the show and that it was fulfilling a negative stereotype, I mean, it was the kind of thing, again, as an Italian guy from New Jersey, I never really thought twice about. I know that's something that, you know, other people may feel more strongly about, but it was... A t- you know, it was a TV show, it was an entertaining TV show, and you know, you put the mob, you know, obvious mob stuff aside. I think I gravitated towards it, and I know a lot of other people gravitated towards it because you saw a lot of familiar mannerisms, faces, foods, things that just kind of felt relatable uh, and accessible for yep. people who grew yep. up in this place. And again, this show had a really Really good sense of place. I think another show that we've talked about in the past, either offline or on a podcast, that does a good job of having a sense of place was like the first season of True Detective. Like you really felt like you were like there. And even the most recent season did a much better job of this than the second season did. But with The Sopranos, like you felt like being in those sort of like blah, like suburbs of like North and like Central Jersey and, you know, with the city right across the river and the swamplands and everything around the Meadowlands, like it, it had that sense of place. And again, I, you know, even reading retroactively uh, some of the stuff around Italians pushing back on it. Again, it's just not something that you know would still click for me, and I'm glad it didn't yeah. uh, impede any of the stuff that the show was pushing to do uh, creatively. Do you remember any of that, like during the run or like shortly after? Yeah, not. I don't remember a ton of it. Um, you know, I don't know if it was just my it was our, the age I was at the time. I wasn't really paying attention too much to the news. I also think that, like, you know, the, the at the time period it wasn't we weren't quite at the. Uh, the, you know the the social media and you know t- you know news blitz and outrage blitz that we get all the time uh, as we are now. But yeah, I just kind of think like when the show addressed that stuff, it sort of was sort of it kind of was addressing the criticisms of it, and it was trying to like comment on that. And I always just kind of felt that it's like, and I, I still feel that way now that it's like, you know, look uh, the the plight of Italian Americans in this country, you know the. <laughs> is 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 you know not something that uh you know and speaking as an american myself it's just not something that like uh is 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 as serious as the plight of many other uh people of you know people of, of ethnicities and minorities in this in this country so you know it, it always just sort of felt like it was like you know, oh, mobs, mobsters give Italians a, a bad name. It, it felt like people needed something to, like, you know, sort of be outraged over or complain about. Uh, and so it just was never something that was was all that interesting to me. Um, and I and no, but I, I, you know, I don't really remember too much, too much of it. It seemed like a, a you know, a sort of vocal minority type thing, and people just trying to find. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. 
Go to your happy price, Priceline. Something, you know, that, that about the show that they didn't, that, you know, that, that they wanted to criticize, uh, you know, sort of more than anything. This is the Overtime Podcast Network. Everyone always talks about the Columbus Day episode, which is probably the least fondly remembered episode of the entire series. But even like the veto, yeah. you know, parts of the episodes, there's some redeemable stuff in those episodes. It's entertaining. Oh, um, yeah. I, I, it's, it's a pretty funny episode, honestly. And I think that's what Chase is going for in an episode like that. Uh, I really, Like I said, I, I think he's really commenting on the, those criticisms of the show and kind of poking fun at it a little bit. So yeah, there's you can watch. I mean, you can watch that episode and enjoy it. It's not a bad episode, per se. It's just you know, uh, for me thematically, there's so much going on in this show that I think the those those asides about like the plight of aliens is like a little. It's just a little. You know, uh, it it seems a bit like filler to me. Yeah, I agree. So. Let's talk finale. I think one of the interesting, yeah. most interesting things in the in the book is sort of Chase basically slips and says that originally the finale was going to be him driving into New York uh, for a meeting with Johnny Sack, and he just kind of drives into the light and it ends, and he seems to slip and refer to it as a, as a death scene, uh, and they kind of catch him right. in it, and he dances around it and says, well, that's ultimately not what I ended up doing. I wanted to go to something more ambiguous, which just hints that you could die uh, at any moment. I think, you know, looking back at the finale and at the last episode, I remember, like many, watching it in real time, thinking my TV had fucked up, uh, being like, oh, yep. God, like, what, what, you know, what happened uh, here? And then I remember being a little sour about it, and then everyone is writing all these expansive theories about why he definitely died, why he definitely didn't die. I, I don't know if there is an answer. I don't think it matters if there is an answer. I think whether Chase wants to admit it or not, he achieved part of what he was going for in that he made something very unique and ambiguous that people are still debating and talking about years and years and years later. When you look at other shows that really botch their finales, I think of Lost comes to mind. Uh, that's just not remembered fondly and people just kind of brush it off. Even if you don't feel that strongly about having some type of closure with The Sopranos ending, I feel like much like the show it's got more appreciated as each passing year has went on. And I think, you know, you watch it again and you, you know, you read about it a little bit and you think about it kind of, it, it fits sort of within the overall sort of vibe of the show. And I don't know if it's any, that show is thought of any better, or any different if he just gets gunned down blatantly in the diner or, you know, it just wraps with them finishing up a meal in a more traditional end. I, I don't know what other directions they could really take it rather than him just having sort of the has expected he gets killed as a result of a mob war or maybe he gets killed by someone from his past uh, that you're not expecting. Now that I think about it, it's almost like how else would have it ended? I don't, I don't know. Like what, what were yeah. your initial impressions of it and how have you thought about it you know, as the years have passed? Yeah, so definitely, you know, I, like you and everybody else, thought my TV cut out. Uh, you know, and I, you know, I, I will say I've, I've grown, I always, in the moment, you know, you, you're, you're, you're pretty disappointed because you're just like, wow, that's it. And, and it, particularly the, the sort of confusion because the cut to black, it's not just that people thought their TV cut out, people thought their TV cut out and they missed like the last 10 seconds of it. And so people thought for a while that they missed Tony getting killed or the, or the, 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 the you know, the pan out 
of the family enjoying their their last, you know meadow showing up and and the family enjoying their 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 dinner together like people it, it wasn't just that it cut out it's that that 10 seconds of black that b- before the credits hit people thought their tv flipped back on right as the credits came on and they thought they missed stuff so that you know is a really challenging uh and really interesting <laughs> decision by david chase not just a cut to black but it wasn't like he cut to black for a second or two and then the credits or, or cut to black and the credits are there that that 10 seconds of black screen is what really, really messed with everybody. Um, you know, it's just such a bold and brazen choice by David Chase. It really is. Um, you know, but I think what, you know, what, what the Sopranos ending, uh, you know, sort of speaks to is just like how difficult it is to end a show. I mean, it's difficult to end anything. It's difficult to end like a book an an episode of television, a movie. It's hard to end an article. It's really hard to, 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 end a television show where you've spent hours and hours and hours with these characters and with different storylines and everything you know it's why a lot of shows actually do a lot of shows actually kind of cheat in a way and one that comes to mind is breaking bad not in a bad way i I bring this up but breaking bad kind of gave you three different endings and it kind of the last three episodes of breaking bad each one could have acted as a finale on its own. So you have Ozymandias, which which basically could have ended with Walter, you know, being there when Hank is killed, getting Hank killed, and with Jesse getting um, his his girlfriend killed by by the Nazis. And then the next episode ends with Walter in New Hampshire. I believe it was New Hampshire, Vermont. Maybe it was New Hampshire. Maybe he was like next door to Vito the whole time, and he didn't know. But he's in a cabin all by himself with the Robert Forster character, who's kind of like the fixer who gets him the new ID and everything. Uh, you know, that, that show could have ended with him alone in the woods in this freezing cabin because, you know, and that's like his purgatory he's done. And then we got the actual ending of Breaking Bad where Walter is, 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 is you know, killed. So, but The Sopranos, you know, it didn't really do that. This is, this is you know, it, it's, it's an end in a very ambiguous ending, but it's in it, but it's the one ending the show gave us. Um, and so I think it's aged really well, the ending, um, you know, and part of that is because it, it is just given people the opportunity to like, to create their theories and, and say, like you said, here's why he died. Here's why he didn't die. Um, and, you know, I think, uh, I, one, one of the theories I, I, I came across once that I actually really, really like and, and actually sort of b- maybe believe in a sense is the one where the cut to black is, is meant to represent David Chase whacking the audience. Because one of the biggest push and pulls this show always had to, to deal with was, you know, you know this show famously david chase david chase has, has said that that you know and it's it's evident when you watch the show that the show is interested in family it's interested in power it's inter- interested in masculinity uh it is interested in uh deeper in, into family mother relationships between between mother and son uh you know really that's one of the things at the core of this show is tony's relationship with his mother and and that even though Livia didn't you know live through the entire run of the show, uh, her presence is there all the time uh, when when Tony you know with with Tony. So there's that, and but you know the show always had to give people violence 
and sex and the mob and the mob uh, plot lines. It, 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 you know, the, the mob plot lines were really the vehicle for Chase to explore all these things. And so you had a subset of fans who, you know, who said, you know, it's getting too boring. There's not enough people getting killed. I need more people getting killed. I need more action. I need more mob storylines. And, you know, I, the, the, the ending, uh, you know, you, you could read it that way of Chase giving people, of course, not in, a, in an overt way, not in an obvious way, in a really, uh, in, in a really clever trolling way, which is frustrating for those for the people for sure. But kind of giving them what they want. You know, you wanted violence. You wanted more people dead. Well, you're watching, and here's a cut to black. Because, you know, famously, there's the, there's the earlier episode where uh, I believe it's Tony and Big Pussy. Right? It could be on, I think it's Big Pussy who mentions it's pro- that when you get killed, it's probably just everything goes to black. I forget exactly what episode that is, but it's earlier in the series. So there's always been that connection. You know, when people analyze the ending, the cut to black is referenced earlier in the series. Um, so, yeah, I, I think like, you know, for me, the ending uh, is is really it's really effective. It's really interesting. Obviously, uh, you know, it's it's uh, it's difficult and it, and it caused a lot of confusion. And you could certainly make the case that it's, you know, that an ambi- that ambiguous of an ending you know, one where people thought the sh- they either missed the ending <laughs> or they're, because their television cut out. You could certainly make the case that that's not an effective way to end your show. Um, and, and, you know, while I don't necessarily agree with that, I, I'll, I'll, you know, th- there is, there is, there's credence to that. But, um, you know, look, we're still talking about it, as you said, we're still talking about it today. And there's still people theorizing about it today. So, you know, if art is meant to sort of challenge us to, you know, for us, it's meant for us to experience it and then interact with it and sort of see what we want to see in it and what we want to see in it in a way tells us more about ourselves. Uh, then it's really, you know, in that sense, in an artistic sense, I think it's pretty brilliant, a pretty brilliant ending. This is the Overtime Podcast Network. I, th- I think it's aged well and it, it came together well. And I don't think this show is ever going to be the kind of thing that had a sequel uh now we have found out there's going to be a prequel which is really interesting uh it does sound like breaking bad is in fact going to do a sequel and i actually didn't love how breaking bad ended i did think it was sort of entertaining and over the top you know with a lot of action which i get a lot of people liked um i really liked how mad men ended i had mentioned previously i wasn't crazy about how loss ended at all but you know breaking bad i think that was one way to go about it and now it sounds like there'll be some type of netflix movie that's going to be a sequel to it and i was always kind of wary uh of prequels or sort of revisiting some of these stories um but better call saul has actually like changed that for me i was kind of skeptical about that show and that show has been way better than i expected now i don't know if what the Sopranos puts together. Uh, sounds like it's going to be set in the 1960s in Newark and be built around the Moltisantes, uh, and we'll get some appearances from a young Tony Soprano. I, you know, you trust it in the hands yeah. of the people who are making it, and it's great to see uh, this sort of extended universe of content, uh, you know, live on, because obviously you can't, you know, you do a sequel, you can't even do, you know, any other sort of additional things of 
around the same time frame as what happened with James Gandolfini. But it's going to be great to see sort of a new piece of content in that overall universe. I always want to go in with somewhat tempered expectations because you you know you worry about like you see with Star Wars or anything else you know things getting somewhat diluted. But considering how long it's been and how seemingly somewhat crazy David Chase is. I'm confident that this will come together and be something that is worthwhile and that Sopranos fans are, are going to thoroughly enjoy. What would have been your thoughts on the early news that have came out around this? Yeah, um, it's it's interesting. I, I do trust uh, – I trust David Chase. Um, so that's one thing. You mentioned Better Call Saul uh, and the sort of the coming sequel movie to the Breaking Bad universe. Um, sort of in the same way, like I – you know, the reason Better Call Saul works and that this movie has a chance to work is because you trust Vince Gilligan and his team. Uh, they, you know, it's just, you know, as long as you have people, you know, who know what they're doing, uh, you know, you, you give them the benefit of the, of the doubt. That is, you know, also, it's, you know, it's very possible that, that this doesn't work. And, you know, the, the, the tightrope walk with something like this film is... Uh, there's probably so many ways that it that it could not work, that it could turn out to be a disaster, uh, more so than there are ways that it could turn out to be a success. Um, you know, and I think part of it is just the expectations. Uh, so what, whereas the the time we've had elapsed from the end of The Sopranos to the, when this movie comes out, uh, you know, kind of helps. Uh, it also might hurt in a way because you built, you know, you just, it, get, it gives, it's given people time now to, 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 to get excited. Uh, and, um, you know, and, and people might come in with, with warped expectations. And I mean, I think that's going to happen regardless when you, you know, are sort of di- diving back into the, to a universe like the Sopranos. Um, you know, I will say it's encouraging that, uh, like, you know, like I said, David Chase is involved. It's not like he, you know, somebody pitched him uh, a prequel sequel or something and he like signed over the rights and said, go ahead. Uh, that would probably turn out to be an utter disaster. Um, so at least, you know, Chase is involved. Um, so far, uh, the the casting is is interesting uh, for sure. Um, Alessandro Nivola, the actor, is uh, is signed on, I believe, to play Chris Moltisanti's father. Uh, Vera Farmiga is in it as well. She's a really, really good actress. Uh, I believe John Bernthal is going to be in it. And like John Bernthal is one of those actors that like he can show up for like three minutes in a movie and he makes it like like twenty percent better. So I don't know what his role is going to be in this in this movie, but uh, you know, just the fact that he's going to be in it is good. And like John Bernthal, like like he should be in stuff that is set in nineteen sixties New Jersey. Like it just seems right. <laughs> so like I'm really interested to see what where he and you know how he ends up, and then I think the other casting decision in the movie that uh, you know uh, is 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 certainly is certainly nice, uh, but but you know has a chance to go to, to to sort of point to to the the possibilities of the movie not living up to expectations is Michael Gandolfini, James Gandolfini's son playing a young Tony Soprano. Now I imagine that. It won't be too big of a role. Uh, I don't think the movie is going to, is you know, it's it's like as you said, it's supposed to focus more on the Moltisantis. So you know, we might get a couple passing, you know, passing sort of mentions. 
of Tony and uh, and and his you know and, and appearances of his son playing him, and it it's certainly like I said, it's really nice and and sort of beautiful that Michael will be able to play the the younger version of the character that his his father you know became so famous for playing and played so well. What you don't want with a movie like this is is just like two hours of fan service. So that's why I, I the, the casting of, of of Michael Gandolfini gives me a little bit of pause because. It means that Tony's going to be in it, and you just don't want the Sopranos movie, the prequel movie, to turn into like, you know, every ten minutes or so, it's like we're checking off a reference from the Sopranos to just like get the fans to like clap. You know what I mean? Oh, there's a mention of like of Tony, and oh, there's a mention of oh, that's Silvio. You know what I mean? And like it, 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 the the movie will be good. Yeah, it kind of sounds silly to say, like the movie will be good if it's a good movie, and if it's and, and I, I trust David Chase to make a good movie. Uh, I'm actually a, a pretty big fan of his uh, the feature he made after uh, after The Sopranos wrapped up, um, which is called Why is the name of it escaping me right now? Not Fade Away. It's called Not Fade Away. Sorry. Um, and James Gandolfini is is in that, and he's really quite good in it. Uh, it's another period piece set in New Jersey, and I believe the 19th. 60s or 70s, uh, really, really good, good movie. Uh, and I, you know, I recommend it to anybody who's not seen The Sopranos. It has nothing to do with the mafia. Uh, it's not violent per se. Uh, it's 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 based around the around uh, the more of the, the music and rock and roll scene. Uh, young of a young a young a young man played by John McGarrow uh, and James Gandolfini plays his father. Uh, you know, and so it's it's not a mob mob movie it's not violent but it's a really good movie so i i do trust chase to make a good movie here um but yeah you just you just kind of want to avoid like two hours of fan service and um i don't really think it will be that um but i think that's you know they know they they're gonna need to just as just like as david chase always had to like make sure there was a good fiery mob plot line and like a good killing scene coming up like every two three four episodes because he knew that you know we we need to we need to scratch that itch of the fan base or else we're gonna lose the fan base uh i expect the movie to 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 have a little bit of fan service in it for sure um but I, yeah i'm really interested to see what this what this movie comes up with i mean it's set during apparently set during the newark riots which was which was you know the, the race riots which is is uh you know that that's that's going to be really interesting to see how Chase and his team handle handle that for sure. So yeah, I'm definitely excited for it. This is the Overtime Podcast Network. Yeah, I'm pumped too. I mean, why not, right? Does it, <laughs> you gotta get, yeah. going back to the uh, you know the world and also exploring an interesting time and place in in New Jersey should make for a good piece of uh, content, which I'm excited to see yeah. come out. Uh, yeah, and but- like. I, the title, the working title, is "The Many Saints of Newark," which is like the coolest title of a movie I've ever heard of. Oh yeah, life. definitely eye like, catching. Like yeah, um, I also think isn't there something doesn't like Multisante like doesn't that doesn't translate to Multisante means like many saints or something like that? Someone was tweeting me that the yeah, other day. Right. Multi- yeah, right. Yeah, yeah, Multisante, many saints. So like the many saints of Newark. It's just a great title. It's an absolutely like well. fire title. Uh, yeah. So before we wrap, let's talk about either sort of favorite episodes. Uh, least favorite episodes, favorite moments, least favorite moments, or we could even just do it, break sure. it out as storylines. I think both of us, we got to go see uh, Pine Barrens uh, in the theater, I think it was about a year or yes. two ago, uh, which about was awesome year. to see in a movie theater. Um, and still from a, 
from a standalone that anyone could watch that without even further context around the show and appreciate is probably about as good as it gets. It's also the funniest, I think, episode of the show overall. Um, Whitecaps, which I think is the season five, season four finale, wherever him and Carmela kind of finalize getting divorced, I I think is appropriately always cited as one of the best episodes. I like uh, how season one wraps up when he, you know, they hand off uh, where he gets away from getting shot, he goes to suffocate his mom with a pillow, it doesn't actually happen, and then all the arrests, and he kind of, everything kind of wraps up well with them having the family dinner at uh, Vesuvio's, that that is an enjoyable one that uh, always stands yep. out, and I think, I don't even know if there's a specific episode, but really when like, you get into some of the season four stretches with Ralphie, and he's at his full sort of, in his full, en- full yeah. element and full derangement, it really feels like the show is just like completely like humming there what what are the ones that kind of stick out for you more than anything yeah you definitely mentioned a couple uh you know look pine barons is great it's really like a a a black comedy masterpiece um you know and if you really you know the the interesting thing about that episode when that we we sort of talked about when we uh when we watched it on the big screen uh about a year ago was like we uh, when you watched that episode standalone you know you you rem- everybody remembers it for all the christopher and paulie scenes stuck in the stuck in the woods chasing after the the russian there's also so much more in it uh that you don't remember and like what you know it is one of the funniest episodes of the sopranos ever and a lot of the comedy is in the christopher and paulie stuff like eating the frozen like ketchup pack and everything but and like and then bobby bacala showing up in his like duck hunting gear is hysterical like he's like ready to go it's it's just such it's so good but there's also like a hilarious scene outside of of that main storyline where it's when meadow realizes like just how stupid her boyfriend is because they're playing a game of scrabble and i forget the word that he makes is it like Yes or yo or as, like it ass or something. As, like, yeah, and it's just like oblique. And she's like, yeah, yeah, and she's just like, oh man, like, it's just such a funny moment. Uh, like her reaction is so good. So yeah, like Pine Barrens is is one of the best. I agree with you on White Caps. I mean, the fight between Tony and Carmela there, it's really, it's really, uh, it's really like frightening to watch. Honestly, it's very visceral, um, and it's such a well. I I watched that. I returned to that scene a lot like i'll just pull it up on youtube because it's just really well written i mean the acting in it is is excellent too like james gandolfini and Edie falco like we like we obviously have to shout them shout them out um you know they're both brilliant uh in the whole series but in this scene particular and like but it's so like it's actually like a weirdly funny moment too and it's it's so insightful about family um because in that fight they both Tony and Carmela do something which is like really funny within the fight. They both bring up something about the other's parents. So like, you know, obviously the fight is brought about by when, you know, Tony's one mistress calls home, uh, calls Tony's home and gets Carmela on the phone and reveals to him, to her that not only did she have an affair with Tony, but Tony had an affair with her cousin who was the, the uh, caretaker of, of his mother. With one leg. Uh, with one leg, right? The one, the one leg uh, caretaker, um, you know. And so, uh, when Tony first gets home and Carmela's throwing all the stuff out the out the window, you know, he he's playing dumb as to why she could be so upset with him. And one of the things he says is he's like, he's like, uh, you know, are are you mad that that I, um, 
you know, that, that I mentioned to your father about your mom's psoriasis. I was just trying to be honest. Like that is, that's hysterical. Like obviously <laughs> Carmela's not throwing you out of the house because you made a joke about her mother's psoriasis to her father. But like, and he knows that, but like, that's just such like a specific family thing that like married couples would like, would, would, would mention to each other, you know? And then a little bit later in the conversation, when, you know, when, when Carmela is, uh, is, is, you know, really giving it to Tony, she says, you know, I can't believe you had an affair with, with the, the caretaker. You know, I spoke to that woman on the phone about your mother. And she says, you know, about your mother's alopecia and her bowel movements. And like the way she says those two things, it's like such, it's so, again, it's, it's, it's so incisive about like how a, a married couple operates and how like, and how family works and how like, your relationships with your in-laws work like it's at this like gut-wrenching moment and she still has the time to like focus on like the in the intimacy of like having to talk to somebody about your mother-in-law's alopecia like it's just it's just like really incisive so like yeah that that episode of that scene are, are among the best um for me um i think the the episode, I believe it's episode five of season one college also deserves a shout out because, you know, it's, it, it really honestly, you can look back on that episode as one of the most important episodes in, in the history of television. Because not only is The Sopranos widely regarded as one of the best shows ever, and we talked about how influential it was and how good that first season is. I think that episode is where it really, like, took off uh, because, you know, you have you know, we, the, the, in that episode, you know, we see Tony kill a guy with his bare hands. And it's really the first time we see Tony, the character, really have to do something uh, violent uh, by himself. And, you know, as as the mob boss, you know, Tony Tony is, you know, there, he, he's, he's able to have some remove from having to do that stuff. I mean, he's able to, like, contract it out to to other people. You know, the, you call up, uh, call up someone else to make, to, you know, to, to carry out the hit. But, you know, he's on this tour with his daughter for, uh, you know, it's college tour. And like, that is, you know, what, what, what are like a rite of passage for a parent. Right. And he's, he's so clearly proud to be going on this trip with his daughter to look at colleges. And then like she upends it in the car by asking him straight up, are you in the mafia? Uh, and so, that, you know, and then he's thrown off, you know, and, and, and then he comes across the person that he, that, that has, you know, is obviously in witness protection that, you know, he needs, he needs, he needs, they need it. They need dead. They need to kill. Um, you know, but, uh, you know, it, it, he, you know, it, it just, just shows like the, this main character, like really getting his hands dirty, uh, literally getting his hands dirty. I mean, to kill a guy with his bare hands and, you know, doing that, that early in your, in your show and, you know, forcing the audience to, 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 you know, sort of reckon with like, okay, here's this character that we're following. He's the main character. Look at what he just did. Um, how am I going to follow this person and what am I going to, you know, uh, and, and how, and how challenging is this going to be? I mean, that was really just sort of groundbreaking. Um, yes. Yeah, so, I mean, those are some of the, those are some of the best episodes. I would, I want to shout out one, uh, another one. Cause like, look, I have a little bit of a soft spot for Chris Moltisanti. Like who doesn't, um, legend. Absolute and I want, legend. Of course. And, but, you know, I, I love, I love in season two, there's the episode, uh, it's called D girl. And it is the one where Chris dabbles in Hollywood, uh, for a brief moment. And, you know, the reason, the reason I like this episode is because, uh, you know, part of the thing with Chris Moltisanti is always that 
you know, he feels like there's a ceiling on where he, how high he can go, right? And, like, he always feels like he's just being used, and he has so much more to offer if they just give him a chance, right? And then he has this, like, aside, uh, this opportunity to, like, get get involved in, like, in Hollywood, right? And it's like, this is, like, a fantasy of his. And now it's like, here's the, you know, maybe I'm fed up with this mob world, and I don't need this anymore, and I'm going to... I'm going to take, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to take my talents to Hollywood. Right. Uh, but what ends up happening there is essentially the exact same thing that happens to him always. And is that he's told mob stories aren't, aren't really big anymore. So, you know, we don't, we're not really interested. And, and, you know, then he, he runs into John, John Favreau and he has dinner with John Favreau and he tells him this, this anecdote about, you know, about being in the mob and he finds out later that Favreau sort of steals that idea for a screenplay after being told that mob stories aren't aren't uh, you know impor- important anymore. So it it sort of mirrors his his experience uh, in you know in the in the family is that he he it, you know Chris is just such a tragic character and that episode um, you know is, it really kind of drives it home. I mean, obviously, so much more happens to him later on in the series, but even so, so early on in season two. You know, he has this little brief moment where it's like, man, I might be able to get out of here and sh- and and maybe I can show my true worth in a, in another world. I don't need to be with be under Tony my whole life. I don't need to be with the, with the family. And yet he's just like kicked right back down and brought back down to earth. And it's like it's I, I just think that's a really uh, strong episode that maybe is one that people don't you know that people don't bring up often. Yeah, I mean, there's just so many. I don't know, like li- like you said, when you rewatch it, little storylines, little moments, and little plots that you forget about that uh, just resonate and are done so well with even not the main character. And like you mentioned, the, the leads in this show are incredible. And I think it's a credit to Edie Falco that when you watch shows like Mad Men and Breaking Bad, uh, nobody likes the wife in those shows. They always get the bad rap. Yeah. They're the least popular characters in the show. Not that like Carmela was some like beloved character, but there wasn't that same vibe with her. And she is just, so good in that show and is able to pretty much go toe to toe with Gandolfini, who's just ridiculously good in that show. Um, yep. And that helps carry everything along. But of course, all the different, you know, supporting characters and the way they went about casting them, even the, you know, from the people who are around basically every episode, Christopher, Tony, Silvio, uh, to some of the people who have just shorter episodes, uh, shorter runs when they go into the different worlds and they're, they're going to get, trying to get Cleaver made and they're trying to chase down people to be in that. They always have sort of that funny, fun take uh, in the world of Hollywood, which Christopher, uh, you know, tries to dabble in, but always fails to dabble in. Uh, And and I think that was always a funny reoccurring thing that, that they went back to. And, um, you know, there was that, there was things like that. There was Tony's gambling, which was a thing that became a bigger plot line towards the end. Uh, The show never really, didn't travel that much or didn't necessarily travel that well. I didn't necessarily love the episode where they went to Italy. Uh, It seemed like they were always best when they were, you know, right at home in New Jersey. Maybe they swing down as far as, you know, going to Atlantic City or going up, you know, into the tunnel for New York. And I actually think they they handled the New York integration and introducing the different characters uh, who came out of jail in season five really well. I think that could have been a spot where, you know, you're going to bring in three or four or five new faces who end up 
one of whom ends up being sort of the main antagonist uh, towards the end, that could have been a really clunky thing when you're turning over that many people because by that point, you know, Ralphie's dead, Richie's dead, and you're kind of, you know, uh, Livy is dead, and you're bringing on these new faces, and, you know, Steve Buscemi holds up really well, and I think originally they wanted to have him for two seasons, but it just kind of got written into a corner when you had to get rid of him. Right, right. And then... You know, the way, you know, Phil Leotardo plays out and he gets sort of that fist pump moment at the end where he gets his head ran over <laughs> thanks to the <laughs> thanks to the FBI tip tip with yep. who's helping Tony out. I think they did a nice job uh integrating that overall. So before we wrap, any thoughts on just sort of that last stretch of episodes in the last season and who the final sort of run of antagonists were to Tony? Yeah, I mean the sh- yeah, the show ends the show ends really strong. And I think like, you know, Phil Leotardo and Johnny Sack are both really good characters. And I think uh that's one of you know, that that's one of the 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 the, the ways the, the, the show is uh you know, one of the reasons the show uh you know was so successful in its in its last run is um you know, you just have really, really strong characters. Uh you know, those two in particular stand out to me. Um yeah, and, and, you know, the way the show ends is really interesting, too, not not specifically the ending, but the way, you know, you sort of mentioned it early on about how, you know, it really takes its time, like, stripping down Tony's life and sort of everything around him um, so that at the end of it is really nothing left. And it's sort of this, like, you know, the, the, the final season uh, is kind of this, like, good, like, it's like a slow burn, but at the same time, you know, be, it's it's a because because we've spent so much time with Tony and 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 with with you know with his story there there is so much to sort of strip down when you strip when you, when the show takes the time to strip it down piece by piece that we're able to get these moments along the way that sort of keep propelling the story forward but if you take like a long like an overview like a holistic overview of it uh, it actually takes a, a little bit of, a, of time to to sort of you know to sort of happen um, but you know, it's really effective so that by the end of the show, you know, the last scene, you know, we see Tony and his family and, you know, that's, that's, you know, again, really what I think what David Chase was, was interested in with this, you know, with this show, uh, he was really interested in exploring family and family dynamics. And I mean, you know, there's there's no there's almost no two bones about it. I think one of the most interesting things to look at uh, for a fan of The Sopranos is is to is to put on the pilot episode. Um, and you know, the pilot episode famously was like done as all pilots, you know, really are done, you know, kind of far in advance. And like James Gandolfini is like 50 pounds lighter than he is in episode two because it was like that much time had passed like before they made the pilot and the show got picked up and they started shooting on you know the regular. The regular schedule but you know the first you know a lot of a lot of really good good work and this shows you the level of, of artistry that david chase is is working on uh you know you know and, and and the vision that he had and that he saw through over the course of 86 or so episodes is that the first shot of this show which m- many people may not remember is we see tony sitting in what we learned to be as Dr. Melfi, the waiting room for to see Dr. Melfi. And he's sitting on a, on a, on the couch, but the shot is of actually in the background and in the foreground is like a statue. And Tony is positioned in between the legs of this like green bronze statue. That's the first time we see Tony. So like, 
that short that's like telling you everything you need to know about what david chase is trying to do with this show right like 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 when because then we also pull out to reveal that it's like we see tony looking at this statue and it's of a, a woman so the first shot of this show being of tony in between the legs of a woman uh literally like being birthed <laughs> is like is 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 like that's what this show is interested in. So you know the way this show wraps up, um, you know it has to tie up the loose ends, uh, you know in, in terms of the plot lines uh, and the mob storylines. But you know it does a really good job of stripping Tony down to to you know basically his bare bones at the end and leaving him basically just to reckon with with his life and what he has done. And you know he has his family there at the end of it of it all. You know, whether you think it ends with him getting killed or not or whatever, the last image we see of him uh, is looking up as Meadow uh, is, is coming into the restaurant. Now, again, you know, what, what is your interpretation of it? Does he see her? Does he not? Is, is that necessarily her? Is it not? But, you know, we know that he is there with his family at the end. And because that, because that is really what – when you look at the opening shot – of this show and the closing shot of this show and the opening scene and closing scene, it tells you what this show is, it, what this show is about. Uh, and it's about a man who clearly had issues with his mother, his entire life. And those issues turned, helped turn him, uh, and, and general, just sort of family issues that, that, that turned him into a, a life of, uh, you know, led him into a life of, of crime. And, and he always throughout his life of crime, you know, uh, held his family near and dear. Now you could certainly make the case that Tony being the bad guy, if he really cared so much about his family, he'd get out of the, get out of the, the business, you know? Um, and, and that's fair. But at the end of the day, uh, he always did love his kids and, you know, his relationship with Carmelo was, you know, was a hell of a roller coaster. Um, but you know, the way the show ends and begins just such a, you know, really, really sort of interesting, uh, you know, it, it's, it's just a sort of a, a really a, a brilliant look uh, by Chase, and um, yeah, I mean it, it's a strong it's a strong ending and a strong closing season. Absolutely, um, and I think dark end in that final run of episodes, but still uh, deeply affecting when you watch it, and more and more effective each time I kind of watch it back through all the way up through, and how the finale ends and. The, the therapy was such a key framing device for this show and making it so much more than just a mafia show. Uh, obviously, yeah. the integration of his family, but that extra layer of his relationship with Dr. Melfi, which kind of serves as the backbone and is one of these things that really distinguishes this show and takes it to the next level, and that runs all the way up through basically the end of the last episode when she finally realizes that he's really just using the therapy to kind of sharpen up his criminal skills and not, you know, kind of play off his sociopathic tendencies. It's not necessarily treating him uh, in any way, but they did a really good job keeping that relationship somewhat interesting and, and somewhat relevant throughout the entire really full six and a half, seven seasons, uh, which is not an easy thing to do with a patient, you know, therapy relationship. And like you said, that is exactly where the show starts uh, and informs so much of uh, his decision-making and gives us more insight into why he is the person that he is and why he needed to end up in therapy in the first place. All right. right. We hit a solid hour. Chris, appreciate it. 
Everyone follow him on Twitter, at Chris Saletti. Appreciate you joining us for some extended Sopranos talk. We'll have to do it at some other point down the road on some other uh, just more general television and movies. Absolutely, yeah. Oh, we should mention, too, this, the, the, before we go, like just the, the amazing timing of this podcast, too. Uh, given that we just had the Oscars last week and, and Green Book wins Best Picture and... I don't have thoughts about Green Book. I've yet to see Green Book. I know everybody has thoughts about Green Book. But the connection with The Sopranos, which some people probably know, but maybe some people don't, is the, the, the Viggo Mortensen character in Green Book, he is playing the real-life Tony Lip. Now, Tony Lip was a man from the Bronx who uh, be, then got a job driving uh, Don Shirley around the South. Tony Lip ended up in The Sopranos, as Carmine Lupertazzi. And Tony Lip's son, Nick Vallelonga, is the one who wrote Green Book. So there is an amazing connection, uh, current connection between the recent, recently crowned Best Picture Green Book and The Sopranos, a real-life connection that absolutely needed to, be, needed to be shouted out. And also, too, Lady Gaga appears very briefly in an episode of The Sopranos uh, as one of A.J. Sopranos' uh, you know, friends. Uh, I think it's when they're, like, they're vandalizing the school the school uh, pool or something. So some, some connections that, you know, we, we needed to shout out. Absolutely. I did not know the first one. I did know the second one from the recent book I had just read, but good deep connection on the first one. There you go. Yeah. Little Carmine yeah. always had something just a little off to say <laughs> that made it funny. Cause they had yep. no idea how to properly speak. Uh, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Always found a way around it. All right, Chris, thanks. We'll talk again soon, buddy. Sounds good, man. Thanks for having me on.